the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990. At FM 101.5, the word in Orlando, a very happy new year to you. Hope your new year is off to a great start. And uh, we're so glad you're with us. Pete Paquette is engineering for us, as he always does. He does such a fine job. Andrew Herdliska producing the show. Mike Novotny, my first guest. He's in the Green Bay, Wisconsin area. His book, Taboo. Topics Christians should be talking about, but don't. Mike is the lead speaker for Time of Grace Ministry, and we're so glad, Mike, that you're with us, and welcome to Orlando. Hey, thanks for having me, Pat. Tell me about this book. Yeah, so (laughs) the book is a crash course on controversial issues that every Christian needs to know about, but very few Christians are talking about. So it has chapters on how to deal with anxiety, God's to-do list for depression, um, how to avoid adultery, or how to help friends who've cheated. Uh, There's multiple chapters on abuse, on abortion, on sexual intimacy, suicide, pornography, Christians and alcohol, Christians and gender, uh, politics, everything you want to know that you maybe wish your mom and dad or your pastor would have talked about, but probably didn't because it was uncomfortable. We tried to cram it all into one book so that Christians would have a great place to start. Well, let's get started, Mike. Tell us, first of all, about anxiety. What are you writing there? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's so easy. I have a family member, a dear loved one, who has struggled with frequent anxiety, which is something that I didn't really deal with in my life. And before I saw anxiety up close, I would have just maybe bluntly quoted a Bible passage. Um, Don't be anxious about anything, Philippians 4, verse 6, or... What good can worry, worrying do? Jesus, Matthew chapter 6. But then you see it up close and realize, wow, th- this is a much more intense, much more complex spiritual, emotional, physical issue that takes a lot of compassion and a lot of nuance. So I, I try to kind of unpack some simple steps like the power of, of the way that God designed our bodies with you know, deep breathing so we can activate um, the processing parts of our brain that can really think about those Bible passages. So, yeah, it's, it's just one quick chapter that actually kicks off the book because so many people that I know and love, and I'm guessing you do too, um, are maybe getting some really unhelpful answers from the church. Uh, just don't. Trust God more. 
okay, yeah. <laughs> and every Christian with anxiety says, I, I want to, I, I wish I could. And so I'm, I'm hoping it's a more gentle, compassionate, but still deeply biblical approach to turn to the God who's going to take care of you even when you're feeling anxious. Tell us about depression. Ooh, yeah, one of my favorites. I, I think out of all the sermons I've, I've put online on tough topics over the years, I work with a media ministry called Time of Grace that has a, a national TV show and lots of online presence. Out of all the things we've covered, I, I think the most viewed sermon is one called God's To-Do List for Depression. And it came out of my experience just working here at our church and with friends who have been depressed that, you know, so often there's a lot of good things that help you when you're depressed. Um, you know, get out of the house and work out and read your Bible and pray and, you know, fight negative thoughts. But when, when you're in that that funk, and I'm guessing a lot of people who are listening have been there, um, that to-do list just doesn't get done. Um, you know, depression kind of weighs on us and saps us of our energy. So I kind of focus that chapter on Psalm 42 and 43, where you have this this Old Testament believer who's really wrestling, it seems like, with his own depression. And what I love of love is that right in the middle of those Psalms is what I call God's to-do list for depression which isn't something that God is asking depressed people to do, but instead what's on God's to-do list for depressed people, <laughs> namely which is to love them when they're in the pit, to reach down to us when we're in the bottom, to hold us in his, his loving, pierced hands when, you know, we're not getting stuff done. So, oh man, it, it's hard to pick, pick one of my favorite chapters in the book, but I, I think that's it because there's sometimes when we need the law of God and the commandments and the to-dos, and there's sometimes when we just need the love of God and His compassion when we're at our weakest. And I think for a lot of depressed people, it's going to be a, a lifeline of, of God's grace and of the gospel in Jesus. Mike Novotny is our guest. Speaking to us from uh, Wisconsin, the book Taboo, topics Christians should be talking about but don't. Uh, Mike, do you do anything in this book uh, on the topic of fear um, not specifically. I have another book called No Fear Year, um, but it, it does kind of intersect. So there's a couple of chapters on politics. Um, I, I call them politically incorrect, which is what a, a lot of good God-fearing people miss about God's view of politics. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that intersects there because, you know, especially in a, a political year like this one, there's a lot of fear about how things are going to turn out, where are things going to go, what if this happens, what if this person gets elected. Um, and I, I think just knowing that there's a role for the government, and then there's this big, beautiful message that the church can bring of hope and confidence because we worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, yeah, not, not a whole big section on fear itself, but I think chapters like that will be a, a good intersection and a good boost for, uh, for courage and hope. Mike, why are there so many books, and, and you mentioned this with your book, on the topic of marriage? Is it that hard to be married? <laughs> yes. I was actually just looking at your bio before we jumped on the call here, and I saw what you've been married. Is Ruth is your wife's name? That's right. Yeah, and 19 kids. Did I read that correctly, or was that a yeah, typo? You read it correctly, yes. <laughs> I feel like I should be asking you. You're, <laughs> you've done this longer and better than I have. So, yeah, you know, what do you think? I'm, I'm curious with the divorce rate being as high as it is with people delaying marriage, you know, is it as hard as you assumed it would be? Is it easier? What's been your experience there? Well, my experience has been if you marry the right woman, uh, mm. it, it should be very pleasant. 
Mm. Uh, if um, if you're if you're willing to serve each other, uh, uh, yes. My my wife needs lots of love, and I need from her a great deal of respect. Mm, yeah, and, and, and if we if we got those two things going, um, your your marriage should work. Yeah, it, it should. Yeah, we have a, should be pleasant. That's that's beautiful. We have a saying in in my house: uh, "Me first makes a mess, but you first makes us blessed." That, that, <laughs> that's, that, a, that's good. A, a cheesy little rhyme, but we celebrated twenty years this past summer, and that's just what I've seen when I'm focused on myself which because of my sinful nature is very easy for me. My expectations, my goals, my wants, my priorities, the way I want to see things, like, wow, that that blows up real fast when one or two people do that in a relationship. But if we're trying to imitate Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and if I can lead the way as a husband, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, wow, it, it's really amazing how beautiful and life-giving and what a refuge and a sanctuary, a home and a marriage can be when we focus on the other instead of on ourselves. But wow, uh, wow, we need a lot of scripture, a lot of encouragement, a lot of support to stay focused on the other person. So yeah, that's what the chapters in this book on marriage are all about. Mike, um, years ago, a medical doctor in Springdale, Arkansas, his name was Dr. Ed Wheat, and he he wrote a number of books with his wife, but but he wrote a book called Love Life for Every Married Couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zondervan put it out, and, and, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of marriage books, uh, but that one um, uh, sits on, on the top shelf. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, it's probably still in print. And, and he had a theory um, that, that a Christian should have the best marriage ever, B-E-S-T, and, and he used that as an acrostic, uh, blessing, edifying, sharing, and touching. And, uh, mm. and, and that's what he taught in his, you know, he was a, a medical doctor, but uh, he, he was concerned about s- struggling marriages, and that's the formula he came up with. If you bless your wife, if you edify her, if you share with her, and non-sexual touching, and, and, mm. and that should do the trick. Uh, wow. Anyway, that, that that's just a little passing trip. Tell me about what you write about alcohol, alcohol abuse, Christians mm. drink drinking. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And you're up the there. You're up there in the oh, in, in the beer capital of the world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This was you know to stand up in front of our church. Actually, the city where I live, which is Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, Appleton, Wisconsin, and Green Bay, Wisconsin, I think for the past few years have traded the title as the drunkest city in America. And I believe seven or eight out of the top ten drunkest cities in America are right here in Wisconsin. So there is a very much a culture. And, you know, we have churches on every corner. So this this was pretty personal for our congregation to wrestle with. What exactly does the Bible say? Um, We actually had an Instagram post last week. Um, on, I have a little Martin Luther bobblehead, and I was just asking people online, do you think it's okay for Christians to drink? And to what extent? And what Bible passages would back up your beliefs? So uh, I try to give kind of a crash course, you know, what do we learn from the life of Jesus, who turned water into wine, who was accused of being the friend of drunkards and sinners, and yet was without sin and 
face temptation without ever giving into it. So to me, this chapter is really big in saving the church from adding extra rules to the Bible, which is super easy. You know, we want to stay so far away from sin that sometimes we add things that aren't really in there. But also, you know, especially in a culture like mine, I'm not sure of Florida culture, but where it's easy to kind of wink and nod and say, oh, I, I had a good time or we had a few drinks, when really you were sinning against God and doing something serious enough that sent his son to the cross. So I try to balance that with like unflinching truth and, you know, lots of grace for people who need it, because at least in my culture, lots of people need to hear it. That's uh, that's fascinating. And I, I always go back to uh, uh, Dr. Billy Graham, who felt that if he was at a restaurant and somebody saw him uh, knocking uh, knocking back a, a Bud Light, um, that uh, that would be damaging uh, to his witness. Um, mm-hmm. And the word would spread, well, 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 I saw Billy Graham and he was drinking it, you know, so he just, uh, he, he didn't think of going there. Anyway, mm-hmm. Mike, we'll be back. We have another segment with you. Mike Novotny, the book, Taboo. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Mike Novotny is up in the uh, cold reaches of Wisconsin. But uh, he's bringing us some warm truths here, folks, with his book, Taboo. Uh, do you get into uh, pornography in this book, Mike? Yes, I do. So the the first sentence of the first page of the introduction of this book um, uses the phrase, my addiction. Because um, part of my story and a lot of where this book was birthed out of was uh, my longtime struggle with that sin. And how not talking about it didn't help me. <laughs> as uncomfortable as that was to maybe talk about with my parents or with my pastor, um, I just kind of hunkered down and tried to fix it on my own. And I prayed and I repented and I went to church and I, I memorized whole chunks of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, Romans chapter 1. And yet, like, I, I couldn't break the grip of that addiction until I talked about it. So, you know, this book is called Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. A lot of that just comes from my own story of, wow, there's a lot of us who are struggling with some embarrassing issues and sins, but we don't know where to go and who to talk to. And I'm hoping this book, and especially that chapter, um, the chapter is called The Second Best Way to Quit Pornography. (laughs) The first best way is Jesus, the gospel. You know, Christ's love compels us to live holy lives. But the second best way is, is confessing our sins to other people, to you know, dragging that darkness into the light. Um, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Um, so yeah, that, that's a real struggle with a lot of people who are going to church right now, a lot of people listening, men and women, and just praying a little bit more probably is not going to fix it. And so I hope this chapter is just that gentle nudge to get people to step into the light, uh, to take that big step to get the help they need and to find a lot of grace in Jesus. Uh, you're you're uh, you're brave to uh, talk about that, Mike. It, mm. it, it, it's it's not easy. Is pornography an epidemic in our country? 
Absolutely. Um, I actually led uh, kind of a, a little ministry called Conquerors Through Christ for about a decade, which really helped people break uh, the grip of pornography. And, and I found that whenever I would talk about it openly and compassionately, that the floodgates of people from the church, people would email me, talk to me, call me, visit me, confess to me. If I bring it up in a sermon, I mean, the next week would just be lots of people who said, hey, you know, that thing you talked about on Sunday, that's, that's my story too. So, yep, there's various statistics out there. Um, some people are saying for a while, one out of two Christian men and one out of five Christian women battle pornography. Um, that's maybe on the high end of the statistics I've seen, but it, it's not a small number of people in our smartphone world where you don't need a Playboy magazine in the mailbox anymore. You just need Instagram or YouTube or Facebook or Netflix. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of people who love Jesus who are battling this sin, and I'm hoping this chapter gives them a little bit of help. Mike, would you tell us um, where the Holy Spirit fits into all of these issues that you write about? Uh, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, I'd say three quick things. Number one, the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Holy Bible, talks about these issues. So <laughs> I actually did my doctorate work on preaching on pornography. And as part of it, I just read through the New Testament looking for really common Bible stories that had to do with sex, sexuality, marriage, and purity. And they are all over the place. Um, <laughs> right? You don't have to find some book written by a guy like me, like the Holy Spirit inspired. So he wants to talk about these issues. That's why he put them in the Word. Um, second, we know that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So if we're battling, uh, whether it's drinking too much or uh, being selfish in marriage or looking at pornography, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who's working in our hearts to turn us away from the short-term pleasure of sin. And then most importantly, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because this is really at the heart of my book, too, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who directs our eyes away from ourselves and towards the cross of Jesus. So, man, there's a lot of this stuff that's kind of convicting for us, whether it's the fear we live with instead of trusting God or the sexual orientation we're struggling with or a divorce we've been through, an abortion we've had. But to note, the Holy Spirit is the one who loves, loves, loves to fix our eyes on the cross where Jesus paid for all that stuff and more. Um, I never just want to write a chapter and drop, like, biblical truth on you and leave you bleeding and hurting um, it, it's just my, my heart to preach the gospel and uh, whatever the mess and whatever the struggle to know that there is a Savior who died not for some sins, but for all sins. So, yeah, the Holy Spirit gave the word. He focuses us on producing fruit, a sanctified life, and especially he points us to Jesus and the forgiveness we need. Mike, where does Satan and all his minions uh, fit, mm. fit into this? I, I think... Satan's biggest damage is with the second sin. You know, the first sin is when he leads us into temptation. I think of Adam and Eve. Um, did God really say? He gets them to doubt and to eat the fruit. But what was the second sin that's a little more subtle is he convinces them to hide. Mm. You know, now that you've messed up, run from God. <laughs> get, get a fig leaf, hide behind a tree. Um Often the devil gets us to commit that first sin. We we lash out in anger. Uh, we flirt with someone who's married. But I think where the greater damage is often done is that instead of bringing that to Jesus and Jesus' people, we hide it. And shame grows, 
and a one-time sin turns into a habit, maybe even an addiction. So I think he's the father of lies, and one of his biggest lies is you can't talk about this, <laughs> right? You need to talk about it. You can't talk. People will judge you, hate you, exclude you, excommunicate you. Keep this to yourself. Try harder next time because he knows that if he can keep us in the dark, while dark things tend to, to thrive and, and fester. So, yeah, I think he's the father of that great lie that we need to hide when the truth is we don't. Um, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he will forgive us. Is he constantly trying to uh, get into our brains? Is that where he works the most and um, and, and cause damage there? And is the Holy Spirit our, our resource to uh, keep him away from our brains? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, man, just because of my own story and what I've been through, uh, Romans chapter 7 is probably the biggest, most used page in my Bible where Paul talks about the battle between his own sinful nature and the spirit within him. Um, and, you know, here's these things he hates, he wants to avoid, um, and the Holy Spirit's fighting back to do what's right and to get him to look towards Jesus. So, yeah, that, I think a lot of this book, you're right, is a mental battle. Okay, you sinned, you're struggling, now what? <laughs> what do you think about that? Do you think you have to battle this alone? Or, as James 5.16 says, are you going to confess your sins to one another so that we can pray for each other and be healed. Fascinating. Mike Novotny has written quite a book, Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. Mike, is there another topic or two that um, that I haven't brought up that you want to talk about? Yeah, maybe one last one. Near the end of the book, um, we talk about abuse. Mm-hmm. And, wow, Pat, I... Sometimes you don't realize how blessed you are. Um, I used to get mad at my parents when I was a teenager that they didn't buy me enough video games. <laughs> and now I just realize that, you know, I was blessed to grow up in a, a safe, loving home. And now I realize how many people don't have that same story. Um, you know, a family member, an uncle, the verbal abuse of a father, the emotional abuse of a mother, the sexual abuse within a marriage can, can happen or on a date. Um, I got to say, out of all the topics I've kind of covered on stage at our church on a Sunday, the one that probably got the most feedback and was the biggest blessing for people was when we actually talked about the reality of abuse. Uh, Happens to a shocking amount of people, especially women, but not exclusively. And to know that if you've been through abuse, um, not only is it not your fault, but God doesn't see you as broken or inferior or less than but his face still shines upon his people, even those who have been hurt by others' words and actions. Um, It's a really strong chapter. Um, The Psalms say that God actually hates those who love violence. Um, God is so anti-abuse. It it turns his stomach and sparks his wrath and justice. Um, That's something we just don't talk about a lot. We talk a lot about forgiveness and gentleness and kindness, but there's a God who protects the oppressed, and he has promised to judge those who try to control other people with their, their power and their words and their strengths. Um, yeah, there's actually a whole chapter here actually to someone who's been abusive, which is a reality too. So, you know, we try to tackle all of that stuff because it's happening in the church. Sometimes it happens at church. And wow, does the Christian church need to grab a Bible, open its pages, and find out exactly what God says about abuse? 
Is verbal abuse uh, the number one form of abuse? Ooh, you know what? I've never seen a breakdown of that. I, I have the hunch that anyone who's physically abusing someone is also verbally abusing them. Sure. You probably lash out with your words 10 times more before you raise a fist. Um, so that would make sense to me, but I, I would want to be cautious because I don't think I could back that up with data right in this moment. What do you want people to take from our chat, Mike? What, uh, what's, what's the answer here? What, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, my, my hope is that whether it's through this book or any other book, that if you're dealing with something awkward and uncomfortable, to actually have that awkward conversation, because on the other side of the awkwardness are a whole bunch of really great blessings. Um, you might be in a struggling marriage. You might be battling with mental health. Maybe you're drinking a couple glasses of wine each night or clicking on some links that you shouldn't. Maybe you thought about self-harm. There's an abortion in your past. You've been abused. Like It, it feels easier in the moment just to be quiet about that. But God's blessing happens on the other side of awkward truth. And so I pray that this book maybe can give you just a little bit of courage and a little nudge and a little scripture to help you step into the light and really experience everything that God has for your life. You've been listening to Mike Novotny, lead speaker for Time of Grace Ministry. Uh, He lives in the Green Bay, Appleton, in Appleton, Wisconsin, near Green Bay. And the book that we've been talking about is Taboo. Topics Christians should be talking about, but don't. We have more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Mike Novotny, our guest in that first segment, uh, the book Taboo, Topics Christians Should Be Talking About But Don't. Mike Alston is in Huntsville, Alabama. His book, Where Jump Shots Meet Jesus, with Russell, Chamberlain, Magic, Pippin, Kobe, Steph, and others. Tim, nice to catch up with you. Welcome to Orlando. How are you doing? Pat, I'm doing well, and I'm honored to be an interview guest and to speak to the I-4 corridor, including my younger brother and his wife, Ivan and Audra Alston. Oh, that's great, Tim. Tell me about this book and how it came about, and particularly what that title means. (laughs) Well, Pat, I'm a basketball junkie, and I am also a Bible junkie, (laughs) and I try to pay attention to the two almost simultaneously. Um. Back in, I guess, when you were in the Philly system, um, back in November 5th, 1966, as a 12-year-old boy, my uncles took me to our nearby hometown, Boston Garden. I'm sorry, the Boston Garden. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I saw my first pro game, and it was, it was monumental that I later learned it. I mean, it was, as I say, I scored my first four-point play. Number one, I got a chance to see the defending champion Celtics versus the upcoming champion 76ers, which you know very well. Um, I also got a chance to see perhaps the sport's greatest one-on-one rivalry between the defensive genius Bill Russell and the offensive phenom Will Chamberlain. I also got a chance to witness a racial milestone because earlier that year in April, Bill Russell was named the player coach for the Celtics. 
making him the first African-American to manage American professional team sports. And I also got a taste of what it takes to make a dynasty. Then later on, much later on, in 1989, I picked up a copy of Esquire magazine. At the end of the decade, they were talking to celebrities about how, what are some of the predictions for the new year, and, and what is the best book to read? And at the time, a rising star named Oprah Winfrey was interviewed, and she said the Bible is the best because every, quest, every answer to every question man has ever posed has already been answered. I just file that in the back of my head. Mm. I started scribbling notes. Um, I, I am an author, and I was getting ready to start on my fifth book because I just felt somewhere that there were some parallels between basketball and the Bible and um, being a basketball junkie. And so then I went to my bank, my local bank, my, my Sonovus bank, and asked my banker, my personal banker, if I could get a square so that I could get that little portable device to help me with uh, credit and debit purchases. She said, I don't have the power, but let me refer you to our corporate office. She put them on the speakerphone. I talked with the relationship manager. After he asked me a few questions, he gently turned me down, said I didn't, wasn't generating enough business. And I said, well, my concern is not for right now, but for my future book on the intersection of basketball and the Bible. He immediately pivoted, Pat, and said, wow. He said, Tim, you did know Tim. You do know Tim. The basketball was invented in a YMCA gymnasium. I said, wow. I had forgotten about that. I mean, I'm from Boston. I've been to the, the um, Springfield, to the Hall of Fame a couple of times, but I'd forgotten that. And he said to me, he said, and I said to him, rather, Pat, I said, wow, the last seven seconds of our conversation is worth more than the first three minutes of our conversation. I said, the fact that basketball was invented in the gymnasium of the Young Men's Christian Association gives me all the impetus I need to start this book. So I just began to scribbling notes. I mean, this was inspiring. And I said, well, if that's the case, if, if basketball began in a faith-based environment, what other parallels are there? to basketball in the Bible. So I said, well, let me start with this. And I just threw it out there. I said, um, are there any parallels between the originator of basketball, James Naismith, and the originator of Christianity, Jesus Christ? And so I just started a little chart. I said, James of Naismith and Jesus of Christ, both were foreigners. Naismith came to this country from Canada. Jesus came to this earth as fully God and fully human, the only such person to do that. Second of all, I realized the fact that when they hired Naismith at the Springfield YMCA, they hired him as a chaplain, providing pastoral care, and also to be a PE instructor. Jesus came to this earth certainly as a chaplain, but he also um, did everything in his ministry, walking everywhere with his disciples. And that's not physical fitness. I don't know what is. I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to what their fitness would have looked like at the end of the day. And then finally... When this cold, harsh winters came in New England, the director of the Y said to Naismith, look, we got these rowdy kids outside. We need to bring them inside. You need to invent a game for them to keep them active. Out of that experience came the invention of basketball. Well, my Bible tells me Jesus prayed all night long to his father. And after praying for disciples, he came up with his own group of rowdies, the hot-tempered Peter, the sons of thunder, James and John, um, Doubting Thomas, Judas, um, the betrayer. So he had his own group of rowdies. Naismith, from inventing that game back in December 1891, invented one of the world's most popular sports. Jesus, working for those rowdies turned disciples, created the world's largest religion, Christianity. 
which now has 2.56 billion people, or basically one in every three world citizens. So when I begin to see those analogies, I said, Tim, keep moving. There's more there than that. So that's what really started this book, where jump shots meet Jesus, because there is the intersection of Jesus and sports. The parallel that I make in the book, and the main point I make in the book, Pat, is that the winningest NBA championship dynasties, whether they know it or not, they have as their secret sauce using and succeeding with the servant leadership model of Jesus Christ, who said to his disciples several times, but certainly in Matthew 20, 28, I came to serve and not to be served. So each of those five dynasties, and I can list them later on, were led by servant leaders who are servant leaders by definition. They were top scorers in high school and in college and in some instances in the the Olympics. But when they got to pro basketball, their coaches said to them, look, I know you can score, but I need you to get the ball to scorers. And if they score, we can win. We can win championships. So you have the 50s and 60s Boston Celtics led by Bill Russell. You have the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers led by Magic Johnson. You have the 1990s Chicago Bulls led by Scottie Pippen, not Michael Jordan. You have the the 2000s Lakers led by Kobe Bryant. And more recently, you have the Golden State Warriors led by Steph Curry. Each of these people were servant leaders, which is a whole together different concept that we see in professional sports. They were led by these NBA dynasties, led by these servant leaders. And so people just say, well, you know, there are championships. I said, yes. But in the NBA history, there are only seven teams that have won one championship, six teams that have won two. But because of my fixation on the Bible and the number three, which symbolizes perfection, completion, and wholeness, I define a dynasty as any team, any franchise that has won three championships in the least amount of time, which is either three in a row or three in a four-year span of time. And those are those five uh, winning NBA championship dynasties that I just referenced. My guest, Tim Alston, the book where jump shots meet Jesus. Tim, the chapters in the middle of your book are all about Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Boston and Philly, and uh, why so much in your book about those two giants? Well, for several reasons, Pat. Uh, number one is that was the very first game I ever saw as a 12-year-old kid on December, on November 5th, 1966. They showed me in that first season the making of a dynasty. For example, um, they showed me, for example, that with the 76ers that you well know, from your years of being the general manager there, when Alex Hannum became the coach of the 76ers, he who had played against Chamberlain in his earlier career said to Will Chamberlain, he said, look, we know you can score. He said, but you are scoring, but you're not winning. What I need you to do is back off of the scoring, begin now to feed the ball to your teammates so that they can score. And when they score, we can win. And in that season, they beat the, the Celtics in a, a six-game series for the Eastern Conference Championship. They ultimately won the title for the NBA against the uh, then uh, San Francisco Warriors 
And Bill Russell is quoted as saying, I see that Will Chamberlain has learned from me how to win. Chamberlain led the league um, that year in assists. And what happened is by him passing the ball that much to Chet Walker, to Billy Cunningham, to Luke Jackson, to Wally Jones, to Hal Greer, these men ultimately became Hall of Fame inductees. The next year, Chamberlain got excited with that. And in 67-68, he became the first and only center in NBA history to lead the league in assists. He then began to shift his gears. The other reason I, I, I talk about them a lot is because their styles of play were very, very different. And what's interesting, I talk about Chamberlain and Russell in the sense that the Bible talks about in Matthew 5, I think 44, love your enemies. And I talk about in the book, the big lie, L-Y-E, which means love your enemies. The point that I'm making there is our enemies, or really our response to our enemies, makes us champions. And so back in 1999, long after their careers were over, when the Celtics and Boston re-retired Russell's number, in that ceremony, Bill Russell stepped to the microphone, and there at that time were Larry Bird, Kareem Jabbar, and Will Chamberlain. He then thanked Wilt Chamberlain for helping him become the winner that he was because Chamberlain's opposition to Russell made him a better ball player, ultimately made the Celtics a greater team. Tim Alston is our guest. Tim, we've got another segment. Stay with us. Tim Alston's in Huntsville, Alabama. The book is out, Where Jump Shots Meet Jesus. With Russell, Chamberlain, Magic, Pippen, Kobe, Steph, and others. And uh, we're having a good chat here with Tim, and I hope you're enjoying it. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend. Talk to some outstanding Christian authors and leaders. You're listening here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Tim Alston is my guest. The book, Where Jump Shots Meet Jesus. Tim, Chapter 11, When Magic Came to Town and the 1990 Scotty Pippen Chicago Bulls. Uh, I, I want to hear about this. Well, I had just started my career, Pat, in New York with a the world's largest PR firm, Burson Musk. And another person came at the same time. Coincidentally, she had just graduated with a master's from Michigan. And so um, I had to send her congratulations earlier this week as Michigan football beat Alabama football, uh, just like your Orlando Magic beat my Celtics um, the other night. Um, and she said to me, she said, you got to see this kid named Magic. Said, what do you mean this kid named Magic? She said, this kid is just coming out of high school. He led his team to the state title. Uh, I said, well, what's his real name? I don't know. So what's his last name? I don't know. Everybody just calls him Magic. But you need to see this kid. So in February of that next year, 1978, I caught a game on CBS Sports with Al McGuire. And I watched Michigan State Spartans play, and I watched this young man, six foot nine point guard. That was an anomaly of itself. But I watched him on the court, and 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 they were running over the team. I don't. The, the team was. Uh, I don't even know who the team, the college team was. 
But what struck me about this guy, I could not figure out what was the more amazing. I mean, it was amazing to see a six foot nine guard. I mean, we were, this was the time when we had six foot nine centers, Bob McAdoo, Wes Unsell for the Celtics. We had Dave Collins, but not a six foot nine guard. So, I mean, his handle of the ball, his passes. But the other thing that really caught my attention, Pat, was he had this megawatt, Epsident two-faced smile, which was encouraging to his teammates, but intimidating to his opponent. And I said to myself, this guy's going to make it. And then I watched him um, that, that year, then the next year when they won the NCAA title. And then I watched him in the pros in his first year. And although I'm a diehard Celtics fan, I had to give some obeisance to the Los Angeles Lakers. And I watched him in their final game. They won the championship. This young man, uh, with um, with Kareem Jabbar going down uh, with an injury. In that game, he played both guard, center, and forward. And I said, I need to watch this guy. And I began to watch him in his career, and um, as he led his team in a servant leadership capacity to championship after championship after championship. I think they, they want to think about five in the 80s. But when I looked at it through, through the, the lens of the Bible, and I know, I know that there's the NBA, National Basketball Association. But in my fix on the Bible, God brought to me the fact that there's also an NBA, which is a, a new Bible advocacy. And I said, therefore, what are some parallels between the NBA servant leaders and the Bible servant leaders? And it came to me, Pat, that there was Captain Magic Johnson, the Super Laker, and I paired him with Captain Naaman, the Syrian leper. Why? Because both had been victorious, because both had the favor of their leaders, and both suffered the deadliest disease of that era. For Naaman, it was leprosy. For Magic, it was HIV. And yet both of them conquered those diseases, and both of them gave credit and obeisance to God. So that, therefore, that made that. Now... In 1985, I moved to Chicago with my job, and I had the privilege of watching um, this young man who I'd watched in college. Um, you know, you and I, uh, Pat, are ACC fans. You were at Wake Forest, and I watched Virginia and North Carolina. And um, Michael Jordan, I mean, he was a phenom. But they could not win a single playoff series because Batman needed a Robin. And in 1987, the Bulls drafted a, a virtually unknown player from a lesser-known school than Scottie Pippen from the University of Central Arkansas. And because they now had this one-two tandem, this number one and number two, then they began to win. And so I, I talk about the Bulls and their championships, and I highlight Scottie Pippen, because even as Michael Jordan said on the uh, series The Last Dance, he said people like to talk about Michael Jordan, but we could not have won anything without Scottie Pippen. And Pippen was the man who carried the water, who was the number two person. And that was important to me for the book because I, I focus in on servant leaders. And in my NBA 2.0 model, in that model of what is the new Bible advocacy, Scottie Pippen paired comfortably with Noah of Noah's Ark because in both of their careers, Noah and Scottie Pippen were ridiculed. Noah and Scottie Pippen were predictors or forecasters 
of of wins, championships, and when Scottie Pippen, after that first championship in 91, chose instead to take the, a lower salary um, as opposed to a bigger salary, because he didn't know how long his career was going to be, according to his interview, he then became like Noah. Noah preached for 120 years, Pat, and for all those years of preaching, he only saved eight people. But the eight people he saved were his family. Scotty Pippen took the lower salary so that he could support his father, Preston, and his brother, Ronnie, both of whom were paralyzed with strokes and injuries. And, and Noah saved his family in the ark. So that was the parallel I drew between Scotty Pippen in the NBA and Noah in the Bible. Now, I'm curious about the last topic in your book, Isaiah 11:6, and a little child shall lead them. We have a daughter who just turned 20. As a matter of fact, Pat, I need to give kudos to you because at an early age, I read the book, Coaching Your Kids to Become Leaders. Mm. And she became a leader. She and her high school, Huntsville Christian Academy, she uh, pushed the school to reestablish girls basketball. She played for one year, junior year, her, her senior year. They didn't have enough girls to have a team, the coach for the men's team asked her if she would become his assistant coach for both the men and women's teams. She later graduated as valedictorian from there and accepted a leadership scholarship to where she is now at Troy University, where she is majoring in hospitality, tourism, and sports management. But in the early years, um, she was trying to learn to play basketball. And during those early years, um, this little um, a middle schooler would come in the house singing about Chef, uh, Chef Curry in the pot. And so I'm saying, well, what's this? You know, and so being, being the daddy, I went to look and see what's, what's the source of this. And it came from a Canadian rapper named Drake. And well, she said, Daddy, Daddy, you need to check out this guy, Steph Curry. Um, he's a star for the Golden State Warriors. I know you're a Celtics fan and Mommy's a Lakers fan because Mommy's from Southern California. And mommy, grew, mommy went to college and played basketball with Magic Johnson's sisters. But you need to look at this guy, Steph Curry, because he's a star. Uh, he's kind of cute. And, and he's a Christian. He's a Christian daddy. And so I began to check out Steph Curry, and I began to watch his play. And what interested me, I remember watching his dad play, uh, Del Curry, uh, who was an NBA standoff for 16 years. But I watched at the end of 2015 – Steph Curry led his team to the NBA championships, first one in 40 years. The next year was a stellar year. I mean, he led the league in scoring and steals and in, in free throw percentage. They had the best record, created the best record in NBA history. He's supposed to be coach of the year. They were essential to win until the last minute and 56 seconds of that championship series when they were bested by LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So then, and this was the story to me, Pat, the number one team became number two. But what did they do? Steph Curry, who was a, a, a two-time score, a one-time scoring champ, and a two-time MVP, led his team to re, to recruit a four-time scoring champ and a four-time winner of various NBA MVPs in Kevin Durant. Steph Curry stepped back, allowed somebody else to step forward, and they won two championships in a row. And what impressed me there was the fact that his sense of Christian Christianity and servant leadership led him to do something most teams would never do. 
most stars would never do, and that's back up so that they can move forward. And as I began to look at Steph Curry, I began to look at his background, and I looked at his sneakers. In his sneakers, he has the number 413, which is from Philippians 413. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then I began to say, okay, well, then who does Steph Curry parallel in the Bible? And I first thought about John the Baptist because both were mentored by their fathers. But I said, I can go better than that. I said, well, what about Jesus Christ? Because both were mentored by their fathers, but they, they went one step further with Jesus because Jesus and Steph Curry received um, criticism uh, from their mothers. Jesus at the wedding of Canaan, when Jesus said, this is not my time yet to turn water to wine, but his mother didn't say a word. She just said to the servants, follow him. And the first miracle was created. Steph Curry, on the other hand, uh, is recorded that during one game, he hollered some obscenities to the fans, got a technical foul. The next day in the media, his mother, who wrote an excellent book called Fierce Love, his mother said the next time he does it, his mouth needs to be washed out with soap. And so he didn't do it again. And so that became that parallel. But as I began to read further, Pat, I began to realize the fact that Steph Curry was more in line with the Apostle Paul. Both were mentored by their fathers. Both stood on the sidelines, Steph Curry waiting his turn to, for stardom, uh, Saul waiting his turn um, to step up, particularly at the stoning of Stephen. But both of them began to advance the cause of Christ. Paul, Saul turned Paul as the evangelist to the, to the, to the non-Jewish world, and Steph has become an evangelist of Christianity because of the fact that his beliefs his practices have made him a champion into the world's largest religion, in much the same way Muhammad Ali did in 1964 when he announced his, his fellowship with Muslims and toured Africa and the Middle East and became their champion. So Steph Curry is a champion of, that Christ, of the Christian world, but also for any of us who have a balled up a piece of paper and hurled it toward a trash can or balled up uh, some dirty clothes and thrown them to the hamper, you know, if ever any of us have ever tried to shoot, Steph Curry, now deemed as the greatest shooter in history, becomes our role model. So Tim Alston he becomes has been our guest. Tim Alston in Huntsville, Alabama. What a book. Where Jump Shots Meet Jesus. Make sure you get a copy. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned to AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be back next week for more. Have a wonderful week ahead. Happy New Year and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.